0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Your Ben Jaroski show for this Friday, December 22nd starts now. Today on the show, Ben welcomes back one of his favorite advocates and his personal poker guru, Brendan Schiller. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, you need to go to chicagoreader.com because there's all that and much more. If you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's V is in victory. S-K-Y.
2: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Burk Goes Down Friday. Burk Goes Down. It's like my imitation kind of sort of Howard Cosell when Frazier went down. I think it was Ali hit him. Frazier is down. Frazier is to. Sorry, folks, no more Howard Cosell limitations. It's actually, oh, what a week. Brendan Schiller is live. Who else to bring on for this momentous uh, occasion uh, in, in the city of Chicago, actually? Ed Burke. This happened right after we were finished with yesterday's show, so we couldn't even talk about it. Miles Conflassen couldn't weigh in yesterday. But the, the text started coming in. Ben, Ben, <laughs> ben, ben, Burke was, was convicted. The jury convicted him. Uh, They got 13 out of 14 counts, something like that. They let them off on something, just for the heck of it. Uh, My beloved bright one captured it. This one is pretty funny. I don't know how many people will get this joke. This is such an inside joke. So the Chicago Sun-Times front page, I'm showing it to my distinguished guests. You can't see it because of the bad camera angle. I don't even know why I bothered. Here's the headline in the front page of the Sun-Times. Got to give whoever wrote this credit for being a clever person. Feds land a whopper. Beds land a whopper. And for millennials, that is what you call a pun. Uh, because yes, he's a whopper, and it was what a heck of a landing, you know, Burke being the big tuna uh, and all that. Uh, but whopper, of course, is an allusion to Burger King. Uh, one of the um, counts against Burke was that uh, he was shaking down the owner of a Burger King in his ward who was looking for a zoning change uh, and uh, permits to expand. Uh, Burke was saying, "Hey, you want those permits? You better hire my law firm for your property tax business." And so, uh, feds land a whopper. Interesting day uh, in Chicago. The Chicago Sun Times, uh, their article interviewed all these aldermen. Uh, if you really want a notion of the like the difference between. People, regular Joes who live in the city of Chicago and the people we elect to represent us, I urge you to read the Sun-Times article today all these aldermen, Tommy Toney, former alderman Tommy Toney, uh, Ray Law, Raymond Lopez, uh, even my old friend Rod Sawyer, who should know better, Howard Brookens, these aldermen are mourning Burke's demise. They're mourning it. They're like, this is a sad day for Chicago. What a great guy. When I came to the city council, he helped me out. He showed me where the washroom was. He showed me where the copy machine was. I would have been lost without him. I love you, Ed Burke. They're mourning him. I don't know anybody in Chicago who's not an alderman who's mourning the demise of Ed Burke. Maybe Brendan Johnson is a little, uh, Brendan Johnson. (laughs) Brendan Schiller is a little bit. We'll see what he has to say when he comes on the show. But it just shows, like, like, the official line of Chicago is always different where people in Chicago are. Uh, if you recall back when the city, when uh, Mayor Daley wanted the Olympics and he didn't get the Olympics, uh, the, uh, the Tribune said, dry your eyes, Chicago. You'll keep your chin up. Nobody in Chicago was crying because we didn't get the Olympics. <laughs> Nobody. There's like the official line that they shoved down your throat. And then there's like where real people are in Chicago. Nobody wanted the Olympics. By the way, no one is sad because Ed Burke went down the Bright One and the Tribune trying as hard as they could to like conjure up some feeling of people remorse could not co- point to one thing Ed Burke ever did as Alderman that benefited the larger citizenry of Chicago that wouldn't have happened without him. <laughs> I'm mean, like, what did he do? You know, it's not like Martin Luther King, you know, dedicated his life to helping other people. He dedicated his life to helping himself. And he abitted One of the most racist movements in the city of Chicago in the 1980s to whip up white fear. I don't want you to ever forget that Chicago, no matter how much Tommy Tunney and Ray Lowe mourn for him. You should never forget that. That's part of your past. That was Ed Burke. And he's never apologized for that, ladies and gentlemen. So somewhere, as I, I said yesterday, somewhere Harold's smiling on this one. Uh, And uh, interesting. Another interesting contrast. uh, While the aldermen were sobbing in the newspaper about Ed Burke getting convicted, none of them were sobbing for Danny Solis. I'm going to talk to Brendan Schiller about this. Danny Solis. (laughs) I mean, like they treat Danny like he's the enemy. Like he did something wrong. I don't know. Was Danny shaking down Burger King operators? Was Danny shaking down developers who were looking for TIFF handouts that they probably shouldn't have gotten in the first place? Was Danny shaking down the owner of a Binney's or the developer behind him? I don't want to know. What did Danny do other than wear the wire? Uh Uh-oh, that's the real crime in the city of Chicago. He wore the wire. In other words, he enabled us to see how corrupt our city actually is. So it's better we all in the dark and not know. Is that the official line? No one's mourning Danny Solis. They all forget Danny Solis. They don't like Danny Solis. I will say this before I bring on Brendan Schiller, who's patiently waiting. I will say this. Despite the tears shed by the Tommy Tunnies and the Ray Lowe's and even you, Rod Sawyer, come on, you're better than that. Despite all this sobbing by all these various aldermen, at least none of them, at least none of them took it to MAGA country. Let me explain. Donald Trump is even more crooked and god-awful than Ed Burke. But Donald Trump could do no wrong with his supporters. They call it a witch hunt. When Donald Trump is caught red-handed leading an insurrection against the government, leading a coup, an attempted coup against the government, that freaking violates every law in the book about one administration succeeding the other administration after the people have spoken, violates the fundamental tenet of democracy. When he does that, MAGA, roughly 40 to 45 percent of the country, says in unison, as though repeating something that was written and handed to them, it's a witch hunt. Doesn't matter if he did or he didn't. We love Donnie. We're standing by. It's a witch hunt. They're making stuff up about him. They all cry. Can't wait to reelect him so that he can pardon himself. At least Tom Tunney, say what you will about Tom Tunney, sobbing over Ed Burke. And say what you will about Raylo sobbing over Ed Burke. None of them were calling it a witch hunt yet. Finally, one point, interesting point. I think it was, uh, I forget which alderman was, a former alderman suggested that uh, Burke will not be in prison for long uh, once Donald Trump is elected, because Donald Trump will probably pardon him. <laughs> think about it. It's like a perfect guy for Trump to pardon. It's his former lawyer. He was prosecuted by the feds, his former property tax lawyer. Uh, thanks to Ed Burke, Donald Trump and his allies paid less on their uh, property in the loop, Trump Tower. And you got to pay more people of Chicago. That's why uh, another reason why people in Chicago, other than Tom Tunney, are sobbing. You got your, he raised your property taxes with that one. So that's interesting. Will Donald Trump pardon Ed Burke? All right. Enough of an intro on that. Uh, That is the opening question uh, I have for Brendan Schiller, dear friend of the show, uh, a brilliant political strategist, in my humble opinion. You should hear the the off-the-record conversations, uh, and a poker player extraordinaire. Welcome back, Brendan.
0: Well, I'm glad I get an opportunity to celebrate what was clearly your Festivus present for the year (laughs) Uh, with you on this uh, day after the Solstice. And uh, thank you
2: for having me again. Uh, So Brendan's mom, Helen Schiller, shout out, is probably the only person celebrating this as much as I am in the city of Chicago. Maybe not. Uh, Maybe Helen Schiller got to see another side of Ed Burke that I never saw. Uh, But Helen was a dear, close ally of uh, Harold Washington and, as such, lived through council wars uh, and actually was elected alderwoman uh, in the same election term that Harold won his re-election. Uh, so she saw uh, what Ed Burke did up front. Uh, we'll start before we get to uh, force you to uh, take a stand on the Trump pardoning of Burke question. Just your general thoughts uh, as a longtime political observer in the city of Chicago and a strategist about Ed Burke getting convicted.
0: Yeah. So my mother has no love for Ed Burke at all. I have no love for Ed Burke. Um, I'm not only acutely aware of his racism, which is is what it was, his absolute, his um, indefatigable defense of systemic racism that occurred throughout the 80s and 90s, which makes him a racist, no matter how else you define it, it doesn't matter whether it's about power. Um, I'm not only aware of that, but um, I, I, you know, I have a couple very specific stories, which I can't tell. (laughs) <laughs> um, on the show uh, and I am aware of how unethical and double dealing and uh, he was you know you mentioned all of the support that he received um, and I think I think there's actually four legitimate kind of things going on in that mix and I want to pull them apart because some of the people you mentioned are my friends before I pull them apart I want to say this for context paraphrase something I heard about somebody else I believe Ed Burke truly wanted people to be helped, but only if he could be the one who helped them and only if he could get credit for helping them. Otherwise, he didn't give a fuck about me. So, but when you talk about people like Alderman, former chairman Rod Sawyer, Alderman Howard Brookins, both of whom I consider among uh, friends, Alderman Tunney, What they're really expressing is, is in various ways, four different things, and I think it's important to unpack that. One of the things they're expressing is a a nostalgia and a grieving for a time past, a time past that they actually believe produced good results for their communities, a time past where where communities evolved and grew and improved and the people in those communities improved based on political machines and political dealings and and a kind of efficiency that was created for governance based on you do for me and I do for you. And there's a legitimate argument to be made about how maybe some of the do good government stuff, what I call from the prosecutorial left of the Joe Ferguson's of the world, has maybe undermined some of that for 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 community and, and results in, in actually some classism that hurts, hurts some communities. Now that's not what they're articulating, what I just articulate, but it's part of that nostalgia of a time gone. And finally, this is the last nail in that coffin. This is the last nail in the coffin of that time gone. So I think part of what they're feeling and expressing is some grief and some mourning of an era which they they came in on the back end of, and were part of, and and which they survived off of and lived off of, um, but also a part of what they're expressing is they did get personal help. Now they didn't maybe maybe they did view it because of that larger context as if if Ed Burke was providing their committee with the uh, with a little extra assistance if he found a little couple more dollars or a personnel in in. Um, the finance committee that helped him out or if they if he hired one of their people that was that engendered um some some personal feelings of warmth towards him and that's true and so that's the other thing they're expressing i think at least as it relates but there's a third thing which i actually think is one of the more legitimate things will tie in to something we're talking about later and this is both both Rod Sawyer and Howard Brookens have done criminal defense. Howard Brookens continues to do criminal defense to this day, and there is some feelings when you look at some of these local corruption charges that there may be some Fed overreach for what is normal political dealing. And there's a legitimate argument to be made that some of these counts um, it really is criminalizing what was normalized political activity 10-15 years ago um, and and I don't really want to delve too deep into that because that's not an argument I want to make but it's an argument I actually understand and I think I think creates some of the context for what you hear from folks who are lawyers like like Rod like like former alderman Sawyer and for, former alderman Brooklyn so I, I, I want to give them the credit of saying that um but then the fourth thing is a, is a pure self-interest in terms of their own personal relationship and a viewing of defending their own activities over the past 20 or 30 years. Um, and and so, but my take is Ed Burke gets everything he deserves because of what I personally know, again, and I can't tell on the show, I think he's an unethical, double-dealing, self-interested person. All
2: right. Uh, a lot to unpack there, uh, Brendan. Moving away from Ed Burke, he's more emblematic of larger issues you're discussing, and I'm happy to unpack them and take it point by point. Uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, the issue of, and I'll and I'll take what you said and put it into these words, uh, the value of the old machine and patronage politics. And Rod Sawyer has been on this show many times defending that. Uh, his father, Eugene Sawyer, former mayor of the city of Chicago, whose life was made miserable by Ed Burke, I would like to point out, who was set up to fail by the Ed Burke faction. They put him in as the mayor back in 1987. Just got to give this history lesson for the people of the city of Chicago. They put him in, and as soon as he was in, they began undercutting him every which way they could and to guarantee the election of Richie Daley. And once Richie Daley was in, they supported him in a way they never supported Rod's, uh, Eugene Sawyer. I just have to say that. Uh, now, but Rod Sawyer has said many times, I do believe uh there's I actually agree with him that the the old way of doing business in the shit how we say that, the city of Chicago, where you put people on the payroll, on the city's payroll, and guarantee them a decent wage with good benefits and a pension was one of the best investments the taxpayers of the city of Chicago ever made in the city of Chicago. That coupled with residency requirements, Brendan, was pumping money into the city as opposed to farming out a contract to some corporation that doesn't even exist in the city of Chicago, does doesn't even have to hire people from the city of Chicago, pays crummy wages, no pensions. So and essentially you're sucking money out of Chicago and give and taking it away from the neighborhoods in the name of sound fiduciary oversight. That too is part of Ed Burke's legacy. I want to point this out. Ed Burke rubber stamped every single privatization deal that Mayor Daley and Rahm came up with. So I would say to my friend, Rod Sawyer, and Brookins, and all those other guys, you can't have it both ways. You can't mourn the end of patronage that put people in your community to work and join in with the forces of privatization that have hammered, the city of Chicago
0: hammered the city of Chicago. Okay. Well, I think the point there is, I think the point there is, is that the old machine worked like the old machine as long as it was elevating um, the Italians when they came and were new immigrants, and then the Irish when they came and new immigrants. But when when it came to the point in the 70s and 80s that the only folks really being elevated were were blacks and Latinos for the most part, it switched up. It switched up under the leadership of Burke, <laughs> heading the finance part of it. And it, at the same time that there was a national neoliberal movement towards um towards basically defunding municipal governments and privatizing large portions of them. And and the kind of moderate to right. Um, leadership that existed in the East Coast and, and Upper North, Upper Midwest metropolitan areas that was originally based entirely on patronage and local government switched it up to privatization and pinstripe patronage, in part as a way to move the resources away from Black and Brown communities. Yeah, very. They right. were they were they were following the system that those European communities followed. Now that said, I would also point out if there was a study that came out earlier this year, Chicago area Latinos have a per capita wealth that's almost twice as great as any other metropolitan area. And Chicago area black families also have a per capita wealth that's higher except for the DMV, Um, even higher than than, than New York, Atlanta. And, And I gotta believe a large portion of that has been because greater than most other cities Chicago maintained its kind of patronage legacy. I don't think you can separate those two. Well, right?
2: yeah, I guess, uh, Daly and, uh, Rom couldn't fire every city employee, uh, <laughs> and they couldn't farm out every parking meter, every, everything that wasn't, they tried, but they couldn't, they couldn't. Uh, and I didn't see that study we, we, off uh, later on. If you could text it to me, sure. I would uh, love to see it. Cause that would be an interesting topic for, uh, uh, further conversation. Uh, so but in terms of, as an ideologue, uh, Ed Burke, going back to this conversation, I don't believe he had a fixed ideology. I believe to your point that you made, it was all about taking care of Ed Burke. And yes. so. His when,
0: ideology was himself.
2: Yes, that's exactly correct. Uh, so, um, I think that the love that Alder's, quoted in the the newspapers had for Burke had more to do with the personal relationships they forged in the Chicago City Council, where he helped them uh, on with this, that, the other thing it has nothing to do with these larger issues we're discussing. um that's my personal belief. Uh, i'm going I'll reach out to Rod bring him on the show. he could, he could talk about it himself. Uh, in terms of Howard Brookins and the federal overreach, I'm going to concede that point to you. Uh, Howard Brookins is a, a defense lawyer. I've heard him on the subject of overreach by federal prosecutors. This is a completely different story and take. And I would just like to point out this. It's really rich <laughs> that every anybody who supports Ed Burke, including Ed Burke, Donald, or anybody who supports Donald Trump, talks about federal overreach. I never heard any of them. I'm not putting Howard Perkins in this group, Brendan, because I've heard him on this. But I've never heard any of the MAGA crowd or the Ed Burke crowd that's crying or Tommy Tunney crowd, whatever, that's sobbing over Ed Burke. Talk about overreach of prosecutors when it comes to ordinary citizens in the city of Chicago on an everyday basis. They were torturing black people in police stations of Chicago in the 80s and 90s, Brendan. I don't recall Ed Burke. Speaking out on their behalf, I don't recall Tom Tunney speaking out on their behalf. Raylo was probably in a kindergarten, so he was too young uh, to speak out on their behalf. I'll cu- I'll cut him some slack. I never heard any of them uh, ever once speak out uh, on on behalf of all these injustices. And Brendan Schiller comes on the show and always gets uh, MAGA types mad at me. <laughs> Get bringing him on when he talks about criminal justice issues and I, April Prayer on the show as well. Criminal defense lawyers, come on. I've never heard them echo anything that you or or April say in regards to our criminal uh, justice system. They only say it when they get caught, Brendan. When Donnie Trump gets caught, suddenly he's crying about a witch hunt and federal overreach. Okay? I've never heard them say it like – well – like Fred Hampton at the top of the list, gunned down while he was... First they drug him, and then they shoot him. And then they get the press to say that uh, he initiated the gunfire. So
0: I'm not... So you're, you're upset yeah. that white supremacists won't attack a, a criminal justice system that embodies white supremacy? Uh,
2: I guess yes. I guess yeah,
0: I am upset by that, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you just want to boil it down to that, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I I hear you. I'm with you. I'm upset about that too.
2: So are, do you feel that there are aspects that Ed Burke himself was victimized in no, any so, way?
0: But so there, there's a finer point here, right? So I hear what you're saying. We all know that government overreach impacts greatly, far disproportionately Black people and and people of color. And that occurs in every major US city. And we don't need to go back over the numbers, but I can rattle them off for you at any given time if you want in terms of the the disproportionality of arrests, convictions, and sentencing. Black folks, Black teenagers are are about 17 times more likely to get arrested for the same misdemeanor petty offenses than white teenagers, right? They're about six times more six times more likely to get arrested for drug offenses, even though white teenagers use drugs, illicit drugs slightly high, at a higher rate than black teenagers, right? And we know if they're arrested, they're about seven times more likely to get convicted. And we know that their sentences are about two and a half times longer. We know all of that. There's no need, we can, we can rattle off statistics on government overreach as it relates to black and brown folks all day long. But there is a legitimate argument to be made that is being made um, in very cynical and illegitimate ways for the last several years about how the federal government prosecutes certain types of public corruption um, cases, and it's and that is one of the things. And and I'm glad you 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 validated Brookins because Brookins has always been, Brookins is very moderate to center right in some economic issues, but he's always been. Very progressive on um, on these criminal justice issues, you know. He was the one who pushed the reparations on Burge, and and so and he's because you know Brookins played a role in getting us Chicago Torture Justice Center, right? Brookins has been very was very uh, progressive on on these criminal justice stuff. There is a legitimate argument to be made that some of these federal public corruption statutes, just like many of the state criminal uh laws are very problematic when it comes to to criminal prosecution um you know i i'll 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 give an analogy you you have um you have three young kids a 14 a 15 and an 18 year old decide to go uh grab a car and they all agree to go grab the car and the 14 15 will hop in the car and the 15 year old hops in the front seat and the 18-year-old's driving the car and then a cop tries to pull him over and they try to avoid the cop and they hop out the car and the cop tries to pull him over and they try to avoid the cop. Cop runs up to the 18-year-old, points the gun in his back and shoots him in the back. The odds of you getting the the cop prosecuted in the civil rights case is almost like zero. Like you're never gonna get money from that cop. But there's many jurisdictions, including Illinois up until recently, where that 15-year-old could get prosecuted for murder, right? Now we now we as lefties understand that that's ridiculous. That's crazy that that fifteen year old can get prosecuted for murder. Um, and in part of the ways is because he clearly had no intent to commit that crime. There are some analogous white collar, arguably white collar federal public corruption um, uh, statutes and convictions where the person legitimately thought that they were doing what the politics and the custom of that system that they were operating in required them to do. And they didn't have the intent to necessarily harm anybody. They were just actually trying to help them along.
2: No. I, okay. So have you ever seen, um, oh God, the, the movie, uh, American hustle. I have not. Oh, it's a great flick. Uh, I, I can't, uh, Recommended enough for on so many levels, and I'm going to refrain from going down an American hustle thing. Uh, anyway, it talks about uh, what is it, the abs abscam uh setup? This is way back when you were a little kid, uh, but it was an entrapment issue uh, in uh, New Jersey and New I York. College.
0: I, I did see a, some I don't know if I saw that, but I saw a uh, documentary. documentary.
2: Okay, I, I urge everybody to if you haven't watched this flick, uh, it is so freaking good, Bradley Cooper. I oh, mean, Louis C.K., I could go on. I could... Focus, Ben. Focus. Don't go down that road. Don't go talk about that movie. Uh, and um, the point is, uh, there's a character in that movie, a mayor of Camden, um, who they really show this. He was trying to do the right thing for his people. And he ends, he, and he's trying to uh, bring a, um, a casino into his town. And you think that that's going to turn around a town that's in severe economic decline. All right. And it's really a setup by the feds, Uh, very ambitious federal uh, FBI agents and prosecutors looking for something that will build their resume. All right. And and it's just clearly it leaves you sick to your stomach, Brendan, that uh, this guy, uh, Jeremy Renner, does a great job of playing this uh, this mayor. Uh, And so I get the point you're making. I get the point that you're making. It exists in the real world many times. In fact, I used to think that prosecution in Chicago was selected to <laughs> the people whose crimes are the least significant. And there's a part of me, part of me that still thinks the feds pull back on going after daily, baby daily, Richard M. Daley. So,
0: I mean, that's the other point here, and that's why that's why the cynicism of the Trump's is a little it needs to be unpacked a little bit because Burke was protected one way or another for decades, and he was in part protected because he didn't know where the bodies were buried, and so there were other people with power. If you don't think the mayor of the city of Chicago, not if you don't think, I believe that the mayor of the city of Chicago, at least every one of them other than maybe Harold and, Harold Washington and Brandon Johnson, have had a direct link to to the fifth floor at Dirksen. The fifth floor at City Hall has a direct link to the fifth floor at Dirksen. The person at the fifth floor at Dirksen, the head, the AG, the Attorney General at Dirksen gets appointed because the senator, an Illinois senator, suggests to a U.S. president, this is who you appoint. Well, look at who the U.S. presidents have been. (laughs) And whether you're going back to, to LBJ, Nixon, Carter, Reagan. Going back, Barack Obama Clinton, they've all had some connection to Chicago because they needed Illinois. And the mayor on the fifth, and those senators who were, who were telling those presidents who to appoint the uh, uh, as the U.S. Attorney in the Northern District of Illinois, those senators needed the mayor of Chicago to be Illinois senators. <laughs> if you don't think that there's some relationship between the fifth floor of City Hall and the fifth floor of the Dirksen, you don't understand how this world works, right? Um, so if Burke had a knew where a certain daily body was buried, then uh it didn't take much of it doesn't take much of a leap for for to see a Dagnan calling um of uh, somebody at the fifth floor at Dirksen and making sure Burke isn't messed with, right? There, there's reasons that there there's reasons certain folks get prosecuted and certain folks don't um I mean, you know, there's certain people who were over at the fourth floor at City Hall under Daily, who've been on tapes in five or six different, um, different federal investigations, who to this day haven't been prosecuted. Right?
2: <laughs> what That's city. not a
0: coincidence.
2: Oh, you know what? Um, I'll take it one a step further with uh, Burke, I, and so. Uh, the notion that he, he avoided prosecution because he had secrets uh, that powerful people uh, were afraid he would reveal is a, a prominent theory uh, in in Chicago. Um, I think it's deeper than that. So, for instance, let's t- let's compare and contrast two powerful Democratic chieftains. One that you know, one you don't. I, uh, Michael Joseph Madigan, House Speaker, leader of the Democratic Party, state of Illinois. From the moment Bruce Rauner took office. He targeted him. He targeted Michael Madigan, and he was joined in that targeting of Madigan by all the mainstream outlets in Chicago, Tribune fomenting, (laughs) it, lathered, like drooling to the day about how powerful and evil Michael Madigan is, cranes. They all hated Michael Madigan. Okay, and they talked about the corruption of Michael Madigan. I still get press releases from Republican uh, chieftains in the state of Illinois that talk about the party of Madigan. They never once, as far as I know, they go after Burke. I don't recall Bruce Rauner going after Burke. Ed Burke made money for Donald Trump. Ed Burke made money for other downtown business owners. So did Madigan. But for some reason, they went after Madigan. Why? Because Madigan, say what you will about him say what you will about him uh, at defended stood with the unions during that crucial moment of Ronner's tenure. And so as such, they went after him. I don't recall Ed Burke. Again, the theme of the show, Ed Burke stood for Ed Burke and Ed Burke alone. I don't recall Ed Burke joining forces with the striking teachers. Okay.
0: Well, I <laughs> it striking teacher. He made that if it wasn't for Madigan, there'd be no Pritzker and there'd be no Brandon Johnson. I think there's a really good argument. Yeah, I think when Rainer got in, the state was at a tipping point, could have went in either direction. And Madigan did stay with stand with the union. Yes. Table. Madigan stayed. And, and basically destroyed Roner Yes. And I and I that's
2: where I have like if when if he goes down and I will there'll will be a part of me that'll be like sort of like Tom Tunney is with Fred Burke. <laughs> I'll be like, Madigan, in my humble opinion, took an important stand in, in Illinois politics, say what you will about him. He was running as his property tax racket, just like Ed Burke. He had that cultish 13th ward organization. And I'll never really understand, you know, uh, but if you, you know, while Madigan was running the show, you also know, uh, Mar- Marty Quinn, the Autumn of the 13th ward was not really li- nearly as right wing as he's going now. So it's interesting. Maybe Madigan kept him in check a little bit. The point is, um, I will have some sense of um, I don't know what loss over Madigan. You know what I'm saying? Because he did take a stand in my humble opinion. I can Burke was Burke was a servant of these people. Am I
0: correct, Brendan? Like, yeah, yeah. Burke was very self interested. Um, Burke believed in power for power's sake. Um, Madigan believed in power not only for power's sake, but to try to do things and get things done. And and um, it, people believe in in power to get things done and have a different perspective of what getting what how what how things should get done. Um, but yeah, Burke was purely just a power whore. Yeah, in my opinion. Uh,
2: and uh, by
0: the way, a story
2: just broke in the New York Times: the Supreme Court declined to decide. I'm going to it right now to get this. This breaking news kind of related to what you were saying. Supreme Court won't hear case on Trump immunity defense for now. The games these judges play. The Supreme Court declined on Friday to decide for now whether former President Donald Trump, we're going to get to Trump in a little while anyway with Brendan, uh, whether former President Donald Trump is immune for prosecution on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election. The case will move forward to an appeals court and most likely return in the coming months. The deficient the decision to defer consideration was a major practical victory for Trump, whose lawyers have consistently sought to delay criminal cases against him around the country. Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel, had asked the justice to move with extraordinary speed uh, by passing a federal appeals court. I
0: know we're going to get to this, but the, the media makes all sorts of bad assumptions in its declarations all the time. You three three in that one. But let's go ahead. Go back.
2: Um, All right. So I finished reading the story. So what's the bad assumption being read into uh, this breaking news?
0: Well, it's hyperbolic to call it a a big blow. I'm a little disappointed, but I am not surprised, but also understand there's, there's going to be all sorts of editorializing that this will delay the trial that's set for March. And there's, we don't know that. Um, The, there is there could be a there could, we don't know what's going on but there could be a very practical decision being made by the supreme court that given the appellate court the dc appellate court which is pretty liberal in its its composition has already set an expedited um briefing schedule and will likely decide this by early to mid january um that if they feel their legitimacy and their ability to decide something that's going to piss off 45% of the country um, will be further buffered if they simply wait till January and then it then on an expedited basis, if they simply wait two weeks and then decide on an expedited basis. Now, I can be wrong. There could be cynical machinations at place, and five of the six conservative justices could be deciding to protect Donald Trump down the line. But I think, given how fast they did everything, they spent one day to set briefing. They spent one. They took one day to rule after the reply brief from, um, uh, in what was essentially a, an eight-day briefing schedule. Uh, that that there is a very practical decision being made on their part. That instead of jumping to it now, let's do it in a few weeks, and that won't impact the March 4th schedule.
2: Uh, fair enough and uh, eventually whether, no matter what
0: <laughs> the real deal is they're gonna have
2: they're gonna have to make a decision on this uh, so I, I think you're onto something there Brennan uh, they they will make a decision uh, on this yes and there's a certain amount of breathlessness that comes with media reporting uh, and I will now defend uh, the reporters and uh, in, in kind of how you defended uh, Brookings. this is their life. This is all they know. <laughs> it's like they live in this, in this like chamber where all they do is obsess over stuff. It's They're kind of like me with the Bulls. You know, it's just like, like if you could have seen all the text I sent, Brendan, I spare you these because you're not really a Bulls fan. Last time when the Bulls were victorious, you would see what, like, this guy needs help. So to their because the bulls beat some crummy team they beat san antonio i was so happy anyway the point is is that in their defense this is all they know they're like locked in this chamber of trump supreme court Jacksmith. but i hear what you're saying um by the way when you were going on that riff uh about who gets protected and who doesn't in chicago i just i had this flashback that only i would have and i'm going to share this with you and then we're going to move on to trump i once read this um Okay, so there's this myth that in 1960, Richard J. Daley uh, held back votes on the west side of Chicago to see what how many votes he needed in order for uh, JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, to uh, win the state of Illinois and therefore win uh, the presidency. You know, our crazy electoral college system existed back in 1960 as well. And I know you do that, but just to remind you. Uh, but there was a scholarly analysis of what went down in 1960 that showed that yes, <laughs> there was what a questionable behavior by the daily machine but it had nothing to do with kennedy it was all about getting the votes they needed to defeat ben adamowski for cook county state's attorney because he was such a firebrand in terms of prosecuting i'm like i'm laughing like oh in other words they were cheating they shouldn't care about presidents anyway some people get protected some people don't in the city of chicago all right um we're now talking trump let's go back to Ah, uh, we jump, we hopskitt scotched over uh, where I wanted to start uh, to talk about the uh, Jack Smith case, Colorado. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court in uh, Colorado ruled four to three uh, that Donald Trump is ineligible to be on the ballot uh, because he's an insurrectionist uh, and, as such, uh, participating in the insurrection of January sixth, twenty twenty one. He clearly violates the. St- stipulation in the U.S. Constitution that says insurrectionists cannot run uh, for federal offices if they tried. Uh, it was the federal government they were trying to overthrow. Uh, your general thoughts about that.
0: So I, when we talked yesterday about this, I, I went on a little bit of a rip and you kind of wanted me to repeat it, I think, but I want to give some context. What I was responding to was there's a kind of Breathlessness in, by political uh and, and the analysts and an argument being made that this isn't the right form for this to occur. Um, and my response is any form is the right form because once it occurs, history validates itself. And and what I meant by that is I think this happens in every area, in every arena, but actually sports and politics are the best areas areas and best arenas to look at. And 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 when I was a Bulls fan during the 90s, um, it's now looked back like a foregone conclusion that the Bulls would be would three-peat twice. Like that was inevitable. But at the time, it wasn't at all inevitable. When they first were trying to get past the Pistons and then the Lakers, that wasn't inevitable. And when they were trying to get past Portland, Portland was a stacked team and that wasn't inevitable. Phoenix, when they got Charles Barkley and Kevin Johnson, that was a stacked team. That was inevitable. And, and, And even in politics, when you look at the 2008 Democratic primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, people forget how long that went on for. And that was not inevitable. But history validates itself. When something happens in history... When the, when the watershed moment happens and things, and all of a sudden there's a flood and a team wins in sports or a person wins in politics, it looks inevitable. And one of the perfect examples of that is almost after every election, when the election's over and they poll the people who actually voted in that election, the winner gets two to four points higher in the poll than they got at the actual, uh, the actual election because people, whether subconsciously or consciously, want to be on the winning side and want to remember that they were on the winning side. And so once a watershed moment happens, history validates itself and things change in that direction dramatically. And the people's overall, the conventional wisdom and perception of what occurred changes in that in that direction. There's been five to 12 opportunities <laughs> over the past seven, eight years for history to put Donald Trump in the garbage bin. And nobody has, and the people who needed to take the opportunity to make that happen have have not had the fortitude to do it. And so we continue to this day, right? When it came down to the Mueller report, which they still call the Russian hoax, even though there is indisputable evidence that that the uh Russian spies impacted the 2016 election, and there's indisputable evidence that there was some collusion, including Manafort giving polling results so that they knew who to target and where to target, right? Um when Barr protected when Barr protected Donald Trump on that, right? When there was the first impeachment and the Republicans protected, when there was the second impeachment and the Republicans protected, there's been multiple opportunities for there to be a watershed moment. There will be a dozen opportunities over the next year for there to be a watershed moment, and any one of those moments will change the course of history, and will create the momentum to put Donald Trump in the bin. Now, if nobody takes that opportunity, then the the, the the we will continue this inevitable slide towards the towards the Donald Trump authoritarianism. But any one of those are the opportunity. And ultimately this will all come down to the Supreme Court. And it doesn't matter whether the Supreme Court does it with this question of the immunity defense or whether they do it with the question of gag of orders or timing or whether they do it with the question of the disqualification on the 14th Amendment. If somehow five people of the Supreme Court find that Donald Trump is disqualified, was an insurrectionist, and that it is a state matter up to states to determine who's, how they define their their ballots and who's qualified. If somehow they do that, that would be a watershed moment. There is enough credibility, especially since it is six Republican-appointed Republican conservative members of the Supreme Court, there is enough credibility that the Supreme Court did it that would change the dynamic and momentum and everything else would follow. Okay. People say that shouldn't happen are wrong, but we don't know if they'll
2: happen. We don't. All right. Uh, so, wow, a real lot to unpack there. Number one, if the so if the Supremes, which I have already on the record, I've already made a bet with one of my guests on this point. Um, I do not believe the Supremes will rule uh, in favor. Uh, will will uh, validate the, the um or uphold. That's the language. Uphold the uh, Colorado decision. I believe they will keep Donald Trump on the ballot, but uh, if their ruling kicks it back to individual states, which that'll be an interesting ruling. In other words, it's either a violation of federal election of uh, the federal constitution or it's not a violation of the federal oh, but,
0: but that's not the issue. If, if if they find that there was sufficient um, if there was sufficient evidentiary basis for uh, the Colorado District Court to find him as an insurrectionist as defined in the 14th amendment, and that that is either a self-executing or it can be determined by a state court under the Constitution, then the next question is, despite Bush v. Gore, do states have the right to define whether somebody is qualified under constitutional qualifications to determine who's on their own ballot? Which I think they do, but they could they could actually use Bush v Gore to say they don't. <laughs> well, of course they do.
2: I mean, we'll get to this ballot access. Uh, we this is a basic a ballot access question, and uh, Brendan Schiller, who was groomed to use a MAGA word uh, in the in Chicago politics, knows all about ballot access fights from both sides. I might add, keeping people on and kicking people off the ballot. So if they say it is a state-by-state decision, uh, then I believe they will have done a service and that it will expose the fraudulence of our electoral college system because you can knock Donald Trump. Every single blue legislature, every single blue, uh, blue being Democrat, state can kick Donald Trump off the ballot and it won't matter as long as uh, the red states keep him on and a handful of swing states keep him on so that he can get over to, as long as Georgia keeps him on, as long as North Carolina keeps him on, as long as Arizona keeps him on and Wisconsin. And, that, that He doesn't have to be in the ballot in New York or Illinois or you kick up California. Just what a fraudulent system we have, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah,
0: he uh, really does only have to be in the ballot in the eight swing states. <laughs> exactly.
2: And, and the red states, a MAGA yeah. country. Well, they'll yeah. vote for him no matter what he does. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Heck of a job, MAGA, by the way. So uh, that would be wow! What a moment! i just have to pause and absorbing that. That you, you talk about reporters losing their minds over uh, a Jack the decision of Jack Smith. Their brains, those little reportorial brains, will literally blow up if it comes down to a state by state battle.
0: But again, if if they were if the Supreme Court were to actually do that, in part, what they would be doing is affirming yeah. the district court in Colorado making a evidentiary finding that Trump was an insurrectionist. Yes. And that would be what the Senate wouldn't do and couldn't do under McConnell when yeah. he was impeached for it, what the House wouldn't do and couldn't do under McCarthy when the hearings were being held, the January 6th hearings were being held, And that would still be a watershed moment, regardless.
2: Absolutely, it would be a watershed moment. And then I would watch in uh, in awe at the utter hypocrisy of the MAGA party, which is supposedly a law and order party. I like once we're sort of tying our theme together, uh, in Alabama or Mississippi would be moving, uh, to say, no, Donald can stay on the ballot anyway. Because if it's state by state, that each state has to determine whether Donald Trump
0: violated. Yeah, so not every state, first off, not every. So one, this is as it relates to the primary, the Republican primary, the Colorado decision. Not every state has a primary; a bunch Very of them true. have caucuses. Not every state has a um, mechanism for challenging based on qualifications, even if it's a primary or the general. Not every state has a uh, has well-defined ballot access um, a criteria. Uh, So, so the reason this happened in Colorado and and is being litigated in some other states is because they have not only clear statutes as to what allows you on the ballot access that in part incorporate the federal requirements, but they also have clear processes by which somebody could challenge somebody. And not every state's like that.
2: Okay. All right. So one state where you can challenge uh, is Illinois. And as I said, uh, Brendan knows a thing or two about it uh, on both sides. Defending candidates were being challenged uh, and trying to kick other candidates off.
0: I I just say I believe that one of the very first things I did as a lawyer and to this day I'm proud of is I knocked Sandra Reed off the commitments ballot by two signatures in 2002 or whenever that was 2004 was 2003, which was when I became a lawyer. And um, and people will say it was undemocratic, but I thought it was a masterful piece of paper. <laughs> if he may say so himself, uh, I knew Senator ree before she got in
2: politics. She was a teacher uh, and a dancer, and I really liked her a lot. Uh, I know she was a political opponent of your mom, uh, but I just kind of weird when you said her name. I go, oh, I flash back to her. she was a great dancer. All right, anyway. Um, so uh, focus, Ben, focus. So yes, you uh, use your mastery of the law to eliminate an, oppo- uh, an opponent to, uh, I don't know if your mom was the committee, but whoever oh, you supported.
0: Uh, who was it? Tom Sharp was his name.
2: Tom. Yeah, okay, Tommy Sharp. Okay, so, uh, and that's how the game is played uh, in Chicago, and that's how the game is played in the state of Illinois. Uh, we have rules and regulations that govern who can get on the ballot. Uh, my gripe with this system, and I've written about it many times, is that the judges who uh, call make those decisions, have in the past, I think it's improved, but in the past, been kind of arbitrary about how uh, the, the, they call it. So for instance, if some lefty who is challenging the machine uh, reverses letters in the address that he lives on, they would say, this is a violation of the tenets, the sacred tenets that cover ballot access. Uh, and if by chance... The incumbent power uh, ally of Ed Burke made the same reversal. They go, "Come on, mistakes happen. That's why erasers are in pencils." <laughs> I'm like, "Come on, guys! You got to call it fair. You can't be like a referee, re- re- referee uh officiating the Bulls Lakers game where you give everything to LeBron. You got to be fair. You got to call it the same for both." Now, that's my problem with it, but I don't have a problem with laws and rules. You know what I'm saying, Brennan? But I'm listening to MAGA now. They're sobbing that there's rules that you have to abide by. Suddenly, I didn't realize MAGA wants to play tennis without a net. MAGA wants to play basketball, and there's no out-of-bounds lines. They just want Donnie Trump to be able to do whatever he wants to do without regard to any rule, law, or regulation. And they're sobbing how unfair this is. Do you think I'm being unfair to MAGA? Go.
0: Well, no. So... This ties into our first conversation in a couple different ways, right? So undoubtedly, this is um, everything that you're talking about in terms of Trump and supporters is animated by white grievance, white supremacy, um, racism, and and is distorted in large part by a bizarre amount of conspiracy and and disoriented uh, political analysis that is really unusual and is uh, has been exacerbated over the last few years in ways that is hard to explain. That's both a product of Trump and who he is and maybe a little bit of COVID and all sorts of other craziness. Um, so I'll start with that. But when, we, when they talk about the deep state, the equivalent to that really is like on a local level, patronage. And the way people embed their folks in an undemocratic way for 10, 20, 30 years into the bureaucracy of government Mm -hmm. and how those folks impact policy. Some of the most impactful policymakers at the city of Chicago are mid-level court councils that have been there for 15, 20, 30 years that were originally hired after they got their after they got their minimal bar passage rate, after they got through John Marshall Law School because they were a precinct captain in somebody's um ward organization, got a state's attorney gig, despite the fact that they really only had eighth grade reading level and have been working in City Hall as a corp counsel, believing they're brilliant because they can because they know four cases and know how to analyze two-thirds of a statute, and been making policy from the perspective of of Center right bungalow owners on the southwest side for the last thirty years, right? So when the left is angry that those folks have been make are still the, are still there even under this mayor, <laughs> making policy as it relates to public safety, as it relates to housing, as it relates to health care in a way that deprives the people most impacted from actually getting changed and improve their lives. That is essentially the flip side of the argument that mega folks make when they say at the federal level, you have these civil servants who've been existing for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, because some democratic hire made them and they have a liberal perspective on the regulatory state that impacts my ability to make money as a farmer, even though I'm getting subsidized for my corn, and my trees by the federal government there is actually an argument that's being made that gets dismissed by too many people on the left about democracy and about how the fed- how the government should be reacting when there's change now don't get me wrong it's a, there is a there's a whole lot of cynicism
2: yeah.
0: and and mega doesn't want democracy they want power but there is a real argument to be made and a real question about how much should government be institutionalized and how much should it be reactive and responsive to immediate populist forces at every given moment. And that's the debate that's been put on the table. That's a real debate that, that everybody refuses to have, that the left has refused to engage in in the last seven, eight years. That's really problematic and causing causing their political problems aside from the the disorder and chaos that is trump yeah
2: uh and uh I, i'm gonna have to think about the central hypothesis on that uh that analogy i'm gonna go for a walk but i, I do want to say uh, it was a great riff and the part that had me laughing out loud uh covering up my mic was when you said these lawyers have an eighth grade reading I, I'm going to defend those lawyers. You can't pass the bar with an eighth grade reading.
0: Oh, a couple that. of them have. They may not pass it, but they got passing remarks and they've been working for the city for the last 24 years and they're making 117 grand, well, maybe 172 grand a year at some mid-level corp council and they're never going anywhere else. Yeah. I can't name them out loud, but they know why. They know, why. Uh, uh, they know. By, by
2: why. the way, there's some uh, bureaucrats in the uh, deep state who were appointed by uh, Republicans as well. Uh, so I, I, I'm really going to... F- we're at the end of the show. I gotta f- want to fight back on that uh, analogy that you made, but well, I think I'll save it for another show because uh, uh, we can go down a, a road. Uh, I want to point something out that one of our listeners, listener Frank, a shout-out listener Frank, who is a very astute follower of politics, pointed this out. He sent me a text on this one, uh, Brendan, uh, that whenever I say, I have to correct myself, uh, as I just did with you, that... It doesn't matter if the if the if the Supremes leave it to each state individual state to determine whether Trump's on the ballot. I go. It doesn't matter as long as he's on the red states. Uh, Frank points out that the Supreme Court justices in the state of Kansas are Democrats. Okay, so this is a listener who really knows this stuff. And
0: well, plus Michigan it, is now a, a Democratic legislature, right?
2: Yes, um, and and Wisconsin as well. So oh, it, it, yeah. it Trump could be in trouble. Yeah. If he gets bounced in Kansas, Michigan, Wisconsin, those are uh, yes. Uh, so let me ask you this. In your humble opinion, we'll close with this. Is Trump in as much violation of the ballot access rules as, let's say, Sandra Reid was in 2002?
0: Oh, when- <laughs> Trump is in more violent. So let me be honest. I was being sarcastic. The reason I got Sandra Reed, the reason I was able to legally get Sandra Reed off by two votes is because a year before Helen Schill and George Atkins cut a deal with, with Victor Reyes and, and and Rich Daly, and then and then the Chicago Board of Elections all of a sudden was buying all of my brilliant legal arguments, and she went from 203 uh, signatures above to two signatures below for some because of my brilliant legal arguments. So, yes, <laughs> Richard Daly, I mean uh <laughs> Donald Trump is far more disqualified than Sandorini, okay. but but I but I don't know if he if if the Democrats have a George Atkins cutting a deal with John Roberts and, and Kavanaugh right now in a way that he was cutting a deal with Victor Reyes. So I don't know what to tell you that how that's going to play out. I have no oh, confidence <laughs> that the Democrats are as skilled as we were in the behind the door politics.
2: And uh, I when it, I I must say this Helen. You know I love you, but at least when you cut that deal, the people of Uptown got some good affordable housing. I always say this. I always say this, Brendan, about your mom. When she made her peace with Daly and, you know, kind of hurt at the time. I was like, come on, Ellen, no! But you go to uh, Montrose and Broadway, it's one of the only, I always say this, it's one of the only sites in the city where they actually use TIF money for what it was supposed to do. Help help people okay as opposed to help a developer so you know what i i always give your mom a little love for that you know what i'm saying so even though that story's hilarious proves my point it proves
0: my point it was my brilliant legal (laughs) scholarship what do you what is your point that i'm a brilliant legal lawyer in my first year of lawyering yes you're right thank you wait
2: did you? i can't remember i apologize did you get your law degree did you go to howard for your Law school. You apply. I.
0: I went to Howard for undergrad. Yeah. I so here I will I will brag. I graduated number one in my class. Wow. At what at the time was the highest GPA in the history of the school? Going to school in two and a half years of night school at what was John Marshall Law School, which is now University of Illinois Chicago Law School, and the reason I know. That there was a bunch of cops and precinct captains and state's attorneys who graduated with eighth grade reading levels because I went to school with them and I was tutoring half of them. You carried them across the goal line. Come on. I know how they passed the bar because I gave them the cliff notes. (laughs) And I had to do it at a sixth grade reading level. Otherwise, they didn't understand what I was telling them.
2: All right. in one show, it's dropped from eighth to sixth. Uh, I just want to point that out. If we continue this conversation more, it'll be a
0: fourth grade reading level. Talk to a couple of those blind level states (laughs) attorneys and tell me if you think they've read a book. Uh, we'll leave it at
2: that one. Uh, that's just why I always say the views and opinions of guests on the Ben Jarowski show do not necessarily (laughs) flag the, uh, all right, Brendan, we're going to leave you with this. Uh, you're, uh, you got a career as a poker player in Vegas. How's that going lately?
0: It's not a career. It's been, it's basically, I've been contributing in 2023. I'm going to have to find something new or get my act together.
2: All right, I'm really rooting for you. My favorite poker player, uh, you know, I'm rooting for you. in I, I will say this,
0: um, th- I did not do well. There's a, let me just quickly say, there's a, a world poker tour series here that just concludes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was the world championship. Two of my favorite people in poker, and you're going to be surprised by one of them. One is a guy named Daniel Siepel. You don't know him. He's from Milwaukee. Used to play against him a lot in the Midwest. He actually won the championship, won $5 million. He's a good-hearted young guy. But the second, surprisingly enough, one of the best friends I've made over the past eight months is Princess Love. If you don't know who she is, she's Ray J's wife. Um, She is a very good friend and a very good poker player. I just met her like eight months ago. Um, We talk poker all the time. And she just started playing poker 10 months ago. And she made a run, a ridiculous run. Out of 4,000 people, she ended up 40th in the championship. And she, I know she's, dis- I just got to say this. On TV, she's displayed as this dramatic, toxic person. She is a very good person and a great poker player and a good friend. And I'm just so happy for both of those two people. Wow. I was to say that. What was the first gentleman's name? Dan Cepio. S-E-P-I-O-L. He's originally from Milwaukee. He used to play a lot in Chicago at the Horseshoe. He's probably only like 30 years old, and he wow. won it. And, and he's a friend. He's a good friend, and I was very happy for him. Well,
2: you know, uh, I have a mini obsession, very mini with uh, poker. Uh, I've shared this with Brendan. I, I'm on the wagon. I've stopped playing, and uh, I stopped gambling completely because I was absolutely worthless gambler. I was just throwing my money away and getting just overwhelmed with anxiety about it. Uh, and, uh, but I still, I have, it's kind of, a, it's like my love for boxers. It's like, Oh, you guys are doing something that I wish I could do, but I can't do. So someday I'm going to bug you into getting either uh, Dan or princess love. We'll do a whole show. I would love to talk about poker strategies and how it is like, like, like like the, like the like how it applies to the real world. Does it apply to the real world? How it applies to like getting by in your everyday life. I would love to do a show like that. So I'm going to bug you about that as the year 20, not just politics conversation. Let's
0: let's get them both on. Good set of date.
2: All right, I'll work it. You'll be, you'll be the guy, the middleman cutting, brokering that deal. Uh, You can take him out of Chicago, but he's still a a Wheeler dealer. Uh, And we'll do that in the 2024 year. Absolutely. But we'll still keep them on political junkies. For political analysis we run out of time no time to talk about local chicago politics mayor johnson immigration etc and so forth plenty of time to talk to uh, brendan about that in 2024 we got a deal yes sir thank you. all right that's uh the great brendan schiller dear friend of the show thank you very much uh also want to thank producer chris he does an outstanding job uh and i think uh that uh princess love and brendan schiller would say hey Producer Chris, give yourself
1: a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, if you want to catch previous Ben Jirofsky shows, get Benny e. J. Bonus interviews, read columns from Ben Jirofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com. Follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J. Show and like, subscribe, and follow the Ben Jirofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.